Sean has mentioned to us that it is uh, Mother's Day today, and um, we're thankful for that. I wonder if it's Hallmark that actually got Mother's Day going, as they um, get uh, great benefit from our participation in um, in their products and sending cards along. And um, but I think if I maybe could be a little bit facetious, I wonder if Mother's Day goes back to the Apostle Paul. Some of you may remember what Paul wrote in the book of Timothy as he was writing to encourage his young apprentice, and he wanted to remind him of the gift that his mother and grandmother had given to him. It was an incredible gift. It was probably the most valuable gift that a mother or grandmother could pass on to their child. It was the gift of faith. He says, I want to thank you, or I want to remind you of that gift of faith that was given from your mother and from your grandmother to you. And as we come to Psalm 51 then this morning, What I want to just encourage us, and particularly mothers, although it has much broader application, is to remind us of some of the gifts that we can pass on to our children, spiritual gifts which are part and parcel of this faith that we then transfer to our children or pass along to our children. And so there's just a number of these things. I haven't really counted them. Uh, There are lots that I had. I don't think I've included all of them even that I came up with, but some of them will be in the insert that you have. And the first one is simply this. Mothers, teach your children about the mercy and compassion of God. It's, one of the, it's, a, it's a really brief summary of what we spent talking about last week as we introduced the psalm. But our greatest need is to have an understanding that our God is merciful and compassionate. Our only recourse in this life when we come up against the reality of our own sinfulness And when we come up against the reality of our own separation from God, the only recourse that we have is to be reminded that God is a merciful God. That God is steadfast in His love towards us. That we can come to Him and we can ask Him to wipe away the record of our sins from our life. That we can ask Him to wash us and make us whiter than snow. That we can ask Him to purify us from all the impurities of our sin. And He does that. He does that solely because He is a God who is merciful, a God who is gracious, and a God who abounds in steadfast love. There's no greater value or no greater lesson, I think, than that you teach your children and your grandchildren that God is rich in mercy, that God's loving kindness never fails. It's one of our greatest needs is to recognize that about God. The second thing that we see as we come to this, uh, uh, this psalm and we recognize if you listen carefully to what I read is it's simply this. Moms, we need or you need to guide your children in a right understanding of sin. And I think this is for all of us to learn that we need to have a right understanding of sin. But one of the most important roles that you can play as a mother and grandmother and great grandmother is to help your child understand what sin is. There is nothing that will impact our relationship with God more than this insight. And this insight is that our sin or our rebellion against God and His His ways with us is a terrible thing. An old Puritan writer said that we need to recognize how monstrously ugly and odious a thing our sin is. And see, as our understanding of sin increases, then it comes back to the first thing that we talked about. So then our understanding of grace and mercy increases. They go together. The greater our understanding and awareness of sin, the greater our realization of our need for grace and mercy. 
I was reading this psalm or this parable of Jesus, which I think illustrates this so beautifully. Jesus told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you understand how that works? The greater our recognition of our sinfulness, the greater our understanding of our need for mercy. Jesus went on to say, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, there is a direct correlation between our awareness of our own sin and our recognition of our need for grace and mercy. An example of this, as I was thinking about this, how do we teach this? And there are many ways that we can teach this. But I would say that we need to help our children understand the correlation between privilege and temptation. We need to help our children understand the correlation between privilege and temptation. Remember, this psalm is one that is written in the context of King David and his great sin and how he sinned against Bathsheba and he sinned against Uriah the Hittite and he could command people to go get him Bathsheba. He could command people to go and kill Uriah. He could command people to cover it all up. He had great privilege and his power and his privilege opened up temptation to him that most other people had no opportunity to sin in. And we find this as we work our way through the Scripture. Those with great privilege enter into great temptation. We think of King Ahasuerus, who got rid of Vashti, and then in his desire to replace Vashti, he was able to collect women from all over his kingdom, this massive kingdom, so that he could choose one of them to be his wife. Or we think of Solomon, who had 300 wives and 700 concubines. Or we think of Nebuchadnezzar, another great king, who who was furious that three young men would not bow down and serve him. And so he heated up this amazing furnace and made it so excruciatingly hot that those who cast those three young men into that furnace were killed. He cared nothing about their life. All he cared about was those three men be cast into the furnace. We recognize that those kings had the power of life and death in their hands, literally. With their power came great privilege. As we think about this with David then, we recognize that David did not have the natural restraints upon his life that most of the other men and women in his kingdom have. So what positions of privilege do you enjoy that remove natural restraints to sin? What are the given and acceptable behaviors that come with your profession? Does your place of employment look upon some sinful behaviors as part and parcel of the job or as even privileges of the job? We have school environments that feed all kinds of attitudes to kinds of behaviors and we think that because we are a young person and those privileges allow us to sin without restraint. 
What about the privileges that come to your son or daughter because they are on a rep team in sports and can travel and get all the recognition and accolades from the student body in the school? Consider then your school or your work environment or your profession. Are there privileges that you enjoy which remove natural restraints to sin? Be alert. Be on your guard. Stand firm. Be steadfast and immovable. Teach your children that with great privilege comes great temptation. What is wrong is wrong even if everybody is doing it. And what is right is right even if no one is doing it. Regardless of your position or your title. Moms, teach your children how to own their sin. David says in verse 3, For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. It's an amazing thing what David does here. And I think what he helps us understand is the way that we need to learn to own our own sin. And one of the ways that we do that is simply through confession. We need to teach our children and we need to practice and model the spiritual discipline of confession. David is fully aware of his condition before God. He says, God, I know my transgressions. There is no denying his rebelliousness. There is no saying before God, well, I didn't really do anything wrong or it's not really my fault. He sees his sin for what it is, rebellion against God. He understands how he has twisted and distorted the standard that God has for him. He knows that he has fallen short of the glory of God. He doesn't blame anybody else. He doesn't try and put it on anybody else's shoulders. He simply says, I know my transgressions and my sin. No excuses. No denials. Last night we were um, celebrating Mother's Day around um, a fireplace in our backyard, a fire pit in our backyard. And I just asked, um, you know, everyone who was there to just share a story about their mom or a remembrance about their mom. And it was fascinating to hear the kinds of things that were brought up. Um, But one of the things that um, was brought up, and it sort of shattered my image of my wife, because as many of you know, my wife is nearly perfect. And um, I've, I've always been troubled by that. Um, but um, I recognized, finally, that I have something on her. And when she was a, a young girl, um, she lied. I think it was a lie, right, dear? Um, she lied. Um, but, but it was something that she couldn't live with. And without anybody putting their finger on it, without anybody... Speaking to her about it, the Holy Spirit, at a very young age, convicted her. And she called her mom aside and she said, Mom, I need to tell you I lied. And I think she said at the fireplace that that was one of the hardest things that she did, was to confess her sin. But she owned her sin before God. Loved ones, we need to learn the art of confession. We need to practice the discipline of confession. And mothers, you need to teach your children how to confess their sins. I think a second way that we learn to own our sin is to nurture and cultivate our conscience. David says, they are always before me. That's a wonderful thing. Because what he's saying is that God wouldn't let him off the hook. Um, We were at this... This, um, this venue this last week, and I believe that one of the songs that we were listening to, there was a line that says, guilt is natural. 
and I don't know if he understood what he was saying, but I believe guilt is a gift of God. And I don't know if you think of it that way, but I think it is. And guilt is this, this inner sense within us that we have done something wrong and we ought to thank God when we feel guilt. Now, we might not be able to put our finger on it, but when your child kind of can't look you in the eye or when they have this yucky feeling inside of them that they don't know what to do with, um, that we have to cultivate that and we have to nurture that and we have to build that up because guilt is the God-given notification that something is not right in our lives. But you might know And you might see in the culture around us, in the books that are being produced, that guilt goes against the grain of modern self-esteem thinking. That why would you ever want to cultivate or nurture feelings of guilt when you're trying to nurture feelings of self-esteem and how good I am and how wonderful I am? One person wrote, our culture has declared war on guilt because guilt is not conducive to dignity and self-esteem. And so our, our, our culture on one side encourages sin, but on the other hand, it won't tolerate the feelings of shame and guilt that come with that sin. How about the, vice, uh, the advice of Dr. Wayne Dyer to those suffering from guilt? Do something which you know is bound to result in feelings of guilt. And take a week and be alone if you've always wanted to do so, despite the guilt engendering protestations from other members of your family. These kind of behaviors will help you tackle the omnipresent guilt. In other words, defy your guilt. Declare war on your conscience. Indulge your passions. Or one of Ann Landers who wrote once in one of her columns, this is staggering, one of the most painful, self-mutilating, Time and energy consuming exercise in the human experience is guilt. It can ruin your day. Well, yeah, it can. That's a good thing. But she goes on and she says it can ruin your day or your week or your life if you let it. It turns up like a bad penny when you do something dishonest, hurtful, tacky, selfish, or rotten. But be assured the agony that you feel is normal. Remember, guilt is a pollutant. And we don't need any more of it in the world. Loved ones, that is so unbiblical. Guilt is not a pollutant. That's about as helpful as a doctor saying to his patient, don't let that broken leg bother you. The pain is just a pollutant and we don't need any more of it. You see, we sang in that song just a couple minutes ago, my conscience is a reminder of the forgiveness that I need. Loved ones, guilt is to the soul what pain is to the body. It tells us that something is wrong. And so we need to cultivate within ourselves and cultivate within our children a healthy conscience and a healthy awareness that guilt is a God-given gift that leads them to repentance. I think a third way that we help our children and ourselves even own our own sin is to help them and help us avoid some of the modern day guilt suppressors. Now, I've already mentioned a few. There are many ways in which we try and suppress our guilt. Two of the most popular, I think, are claiming victim status or by claiming that sin is a disease. In the victim model, it's not what I do, but it's what that what has happened to me that is the issue. 
And so somehow my sin or my behavior or my actions are justified because of what has happened to me. Loved ones, sin is still sin. It doesn't matter how bad a day you've had, it does not allow you to come home and punch your brother or sister. Sin is still sin. Circumstances never give us a free card to sin. When we cover up our actions with a victim card, we, ex- we suppress the real guilt that has been given to us by God and that's produced by our sin. I don't deny that some terrible things have happened to us and over the course of our life, but that still is never an excuse for sin. I think a second way that we try and tackle this too is we just label sin now disease and everything is relegated to a sickness or a disorder. But again, loved ones, our problem is not a disease. Our problem is spiritual. And again, I'm not saying that there are very real physical and hormonal and addictive influences that come in and get a hold of our behaviors. But again, those behaviors are still nonetheless sinful. And they produce really real feelings of guilt. And we can mask our guilt by redefining sin as a physical problem or a disease because it's easier sometimes to say that I am sick rather than to say I am a sinner. And so we have to teach our children and we have to remind ourselves that it doesn't help to classify sin as a sickness or a disease that will only mask temporarily the God-given gift of guilt that we feel Paul Manager wrote, we desperately need to recover the conviction that certain behavior is sinful. Bottom line. So moms, that's how you teach your children to own their sin. Teach them how to confess their sin. Teach them by nurturing and developing their conscience within them by filling them with the word of God. Teach them to call their sin what it is and Not to hide behind victim status or sin as a disease status. David didn't cry out, I'm a victim. He didn't say, I am sick. He said, I know my transgression and it's ever before me. J.R. Packer wrote that an educated conscience is God's monitor. Isn't that a beautiful way of putting it? An educated conscience is God's monitor. It alerts us to the moral quality of what we do or plan to do, forbids lawlessness and irresponsibility, makes us feel guilt, shame, and fear of the future retribution that it tells us we deserve when we have allowed ourselves to defy its restraints. Satan's strategy is to corrupt, desensitize, and if possible, kill our consciences. And his task is made simpler by the way in which the world's moral weaknesses have been taken into the contemporary church. Loved ones, We need to have an educated conscience. And we educate it by constantly filling ourselves with the Word of God, with the warnings of Scripture, with the truths of Scripture, with the promises of Scripture. Another point that the psalmist makes here, and I think it's such an important one for us to understand. Moms, you need to teach your children that ultimately their sin is against God. David wrote in verse 4, and I, I think sometimes we, we, we rush over these things and we don't reflect on them very much because there is a world of understanding, even in this one phrase where he says at the beginning of verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. 
Because in there, he's acknowledging that this is God's world. In there, he's acknowledging that God is our creator. In there, he's acknowledging that I have been created in the image of God. In there, he is acknowledging that I am ultimately responsible to God. And so he says, against you and you only have I sinned. David, yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against his army. He sinned against his people. But ultimately, it was against God that he sinned because he had broken God's law. It was God who had said, you shall not commit adultery. It was God who has said, you shall not murder. It is God who has told us we shall not covet. It is God who has told us we should not murder. It is God who has told us that we should tell the truth. And so when we lie to our mother or father, we lie to them, yes, and it hurts them. But ultimately, our offense is an offense against the holy God. And it's a world of difference when we acknowledge that. It's a, it's a world of protection in our life. It's far better. You know, David was in the position when, 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 uh, of the prodigal son as he's coming home before, uh, after he's gone into the field and he's been convicted of his sin. And he comes home and he's rehearsing in his head and his line is, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Far better, though, he had been like Joseph, who before Potiphar's wife, who was persistently begged, to have relations with her. She persistently begged him to have relations with her. Day after day, it says. And finally, he says to her, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? You see, it's that view that will protect us from temptation. It's that understanding of the reality of our actions that will protect us against um, sinning against other people and against God to recognize that sin is a great evil and it's an offense against God. Loved ones, if you and I want to resist temptation, if we want to grow in our ability to fight this battle that we fight on a daily basis, then one of the things that we can do is embed in our hearts and minds that ultimately when I stray from what I should do, I offend God. A Puritan writer long ago wrote these words. Can you find it in your heart to hug and embrace such a monster as this? He's talking about sin. Will you love that which hates God and which God hates? God forbid. Will you join yourself to that which is nothing but contrariety to God and all that is good? Away! Away! Shall I be seduced by you to grieve the God of all my joy? To displease the God of all my comfort. To vex the God of all my contentment. To do evil against God by whom I live and move and have my being. Oh no. How do we teach this to our children? I think we teach this to our children by calling sin what it is. It's evil. Let's call it what it is. It's evil. And I fell down before the Lord as at the first forty days and nights, and I neither ate bread nor drank water, because all of the sin which you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, to promote, provoke him to anger. Loved ones, sin is not a misstep. Sin is not a weak moment. Sin is evil. We need to realize that. I think another way that we teach this to our children, this notion that against you and you only 
have I sinned is to remind them that God is omniscient. To remind them that God sees everything. To remind them that God knows everything. I've been wrestling and meditating on and reflecting on this statement that I read two or three weeks ago, and it seemed to fit here, and I'll share it with you. Simply this, God may be silent, but he's not sightless. God may be silent in your life, and you may be unaware of of his comings and his goings, and you may not have been reading his word, and you may have strayed from him, but know that God is not sightless. He sees everything. Nothing escapes his notice. God watches the wicked and the good. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. David's sin was no secret to God. From a human perspective, this might have been the case. Nathan came to him and said, you did this in secret. But God saw. See, there is an occasion, loved ones, and this is another thing that we need to mention. There is an occasion for private sins that has increased markedly in the day in which we live. We've already talked about the danger of position or the danger of privilege. And we need to remind ourselves and remind our children of that. But there is even a greater danger or an equal danger in the danger of privacy. We have moved from small homes and large families to large homes and small families. We have moved from rural settings to urban settings, from being known by many to being known by no one or just a few. And anonymity is dangerous. Businessmen and women travel to cities where they are not known. They stay in places where temptation abounds. And sometimes they think no one will know. No one will see. We've moved from stores on the street, which we had to walk into, to movie theaters, which we could sneak into, to cable TV, which enters our home, to cell phones that we can carry everywhere, to bedrooms with TVs and computers in them. Our ability to access sin is huge. We need to remind ourselves and moms, you need to teach your children that you may think no one sees and no one knows, but just because God is silent, does not mean God is sightless. May God give us all the conviction of Joseph when confronted with the anonymity of closed doors. And loved ones, if I can say on a side, Joseph battled both of these temptations. On the one hand, he had great privilege. Remember what he said to Potiphar's wife? My master has given me everything. I am over his whole household. The one thing he has not given to me is you. And then in the privacy and the anonymity of her home, she persistently went for him. But what was his response? How can I commit this great evil against God? Loved ones, we need to teach these sorts of things to our children. We need to teach them that ultimately their sin is against God. 
There's a, another point, and I'll, I'll only say this quickly, and it comes out of verse 4 again, where David says that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Moms, we need to, you need to teach your children the importance of submitting to a just God. I am aware in an increasing measure of how parents take the side of their children to never see the wrong that they do. And in fact, we are the same. We never see the wrong that we do. We see justice for everybody else, but we don't want justice for ourselves. It wasn't long ago, a few years ago, I received a beautiful Polaroid picture of my car in the mail. I had just washed it. And so everything in the picture was plainly readable. I was angry. The place that I had received the picture was taken just after a change of driving instructions on the side of the road. The driving instructions for that particular section of the road, to my mind, were horribly unfair. They didn't make sense to me. And besides, I was barely in violation of those instructions. It wasn't fair. It was a trap. But I was still wrong. <laughs> you got one too, did you, Carson? <laughs> it was still wrong. Even if I were going only one mile an hour over the speed limit, it was still wrong. And even now I can acknowledge my guilt, but there's still something in me that fights against the fairness of it. This is how we approach God. We need to acknowledge our guilt and our sin. And then we need to acknowledge the fairness of God's justice towards us. And we need to acknowledge the fairness of his sentence pronounced against us. Until we reach this point, beloved, we have not fully repented. And we have not come to grips with our sin. The last point, and... I think it's the most necessary balance to what I've said because what I've said so far you might find heavy and you might find the law and you might find cold and harsh. But it's necessary because it points then to this final thing which I think is so important. Moms, lead your children to Jesus Christ. You see, this begins by helping them understand the truth about themselves. Mom, I don't want to do it. I just did it. Mom, I don't know why I did it. I just did it. See, David says in verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Loved ones, this is one of the most simple truths that we can come to understand about ourselves and our children. And, and it will be the only truth that will give us the right response to those statements. I was rereading a chapter from a book on parenting by John MacArthur this week. And after noting the range of courses that are available on parenting, he writes this. There is one gigantic pitfall that is too often overlooked by Christian parents. I am constantly amazed at how little is said in most Christian parenting curricula about it. I'm speaking of the child's inborn inclination towards evil. You see, we are not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. 
In other words, they can't fix themselves. And you and I can't fix ourselves. We can't fight this sin thing that's inside of us that we're made aware of by ourselves. We can't resolve the tension. We can't wash away the guilt. We can't resolve it. We need help. And this is why we teach our kids that They are sinners from the get-go, that it's something that's in their nature, that from the time they were born, they they, they began sinning. And I know it's hard for us to understand that, and it's hard for us to accept the fact that even children are sinful, that even little ones can express sinful behaviors and actions and attitudes. And when David confesses his sinfulness from birth, he's acknowledging that only not, not only has he sinned now, but he sinned all his life. It's his pattern. It's who he is. And there's only one remedy for it, loved ones. It's regeneration. It's rebirth. It's God coming in and doing this inward transformation in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit based on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And until that happens for us, and even for our children, you will never be able to conquer the power of sin. It's Jesus through His shed blood on the cross. And through the fact that he bore the penalty for our sin, the fact that he crushed the power of sin, it's through Jesus that we then have the victory to win over these things that so often battle in our hearts and lives. David even says he was a sinner by nature. And that is just the teaching that we all go back to Adam, that Adam is our representative head, that in Adam's sin, we all sin. By one man's obedience, the many were made sinners. And with complete honesty, David confesses that what he is is completely contrary to what God desires. He says to God in verse 6, Surely you desire truth in the innermost parts. God, you want me to be loyal. You want me to pursue godliness. You want me to love you with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. But unless you send wisdom from on high, unless you teach me wisdom in the innermost place, I'm hooped. And what is that wisdom in the innermost place? In its most succinct form, it's the truth about Jesus Christ. Moms, the most important thing you can teach your children, bar none, is teach them about Jesus. Your main task is to be evangelist in your home. It's to teach your children about the law. It's to teach them about grace. It's to teach them about a need of the Savior. It's to point your children to Jesus Christ as the only one who can save them. That He will forgive their sins. That He will help them obey. That He can change them from the inside out. That He will help them to want to do what is right. That He will change them so that they can do right. Put into your children a keen awareness of their need for salvation and then point them to the Savior. Jesus Christ. Truth is, we all need Jesus, don't we? It's not just our sons and our daughters and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. There are some even here today who need Jesus. Maybe I've touched a nerve and made you aware of sin that's in your life. It's nothing new to you. You've wrestled with it for so long, but you've not been able to conquer it. You'll never be able to beat it on your own. 
You'll never be able to deal with it on your own. You'll never be able to pay the consequences for your sin. But I know one who can. It's Jesus Christ. And if you would but come to Jesus today and said, I cannot do this any longer. I cannot deal with this stuff that's inside of me. I cannot win the battle. Jesus would say to you, then come to me. Find rest. Come to me. Find forgiveness of sins. Come to me. Find cleansing. Come to me. And I will fill you with my spirit who will give you the power and the ability to deal with those things that have to this point brought you down. Come to Jesus today. I heard this or read this song by Charles Wesley. Conclude with it. I want a principle within of watchful godly fear. A sensibility of sin, a pain to feel it near. I want the first approach to feel of pride or wrong desire, to catch the wandering of my will and quench the kindling fire. From thee that I no more may stray, no more thy goodness grieve. Grant me the filial all, I pray, the tender conscience give. Quick as the apple of an eye, O God, my conscience make. Awake my soul when sin is nigh, and keep it still awake. Almighty God of love and truth, to me thy power impart. The mountain from my soul remove the hardness from my heart. O may the least omission pain and reawaken my reawakened soul. And drive me to that blood again, which makes the wounded whole. Why not come to Jesus?